so we'll start with the first panel discussion session only and for that uh, i'd like to invite uh, shishir thadani ji uh, geeti thadani ji and abhijit ayer mitra ji onto the stage please Shishit Dadani is the senior gay activist from India. He's brother of Geeti Dadani and founder of Trikon, overseas uh, living co-founder, uh, uh, co one of the co-founder of Trikon. Um, <laughs> so, and her uh, sister, uh, elder sister is Geeti Dadani. Sister. Younger sister. <laughs> yeah, and we have. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So it's in one family you can see them and. Uh, uh, they have done so much for the yearly community and Geeti is the actual founder of NAS Foundation, the yearly founder of NAS Foundation and we have Abhijit who is the senior defense analyst. So. Good morning. Uh, so um, the way I thought we'd do this is that we'd each uh, take about say what five to ten minutes to talk and okay and then we'll have a Q&A session. Uh, so um, I'm not being sexist or anything, but ladies first. So. Okay, fair point. Okay, so let me start. Uh, why am I here? Um, just a little anecdote, actually. When we were teenagers, my sister and I just sort of, you know, innocently said to each other, "I said I like boys," and she said she liked boys. So we were, you know, we were still children and we hadn't told anybody else in the world, but we just sort of spontaneously told each other. And so for, I think for both of us, that knowledge made it very easy to accept who we were. Because <coughs> it was like, oh, my sister likes girls and I like boys, even though the rest of the world is the opposite. But in our case, that's how it is. And so I think that was a blessing in some sense because unlike a lot of other gay people that I know of, you know, lesbian, you know, people from the community who, who have uh, slightly different gender identities or attractions and so on. For us, it was the most natural thing. You know, even though we were different, for us, it was not something unnatural or something we had to fight or try to change. So I want, that's the starting point. And uh, jumping ahead, I was, I did my master's in the US and then I started working. And after I started, and after, I just as I was finishing my master's at the university in the US, I began telling family members. I told my mother, I told some un aunts and uncles and I told um, some, a lot of my school friends who I was in touch with and some uh, friends I had at the IIT when I was uh, studying abroad. And as it turned out, the only problem that I had was that my mother was very upset because now her thing was, what do I tell other people? So as a compromise, I said, okay, I won't tell any relatives in India, but I can tell relatives in the US. So that was a sort of promise I made to my mother. And uh, for her, again, the problem was not that I was gay, but it was more, what will other people think? And I'm going to keep coming back to this theme of what will other people think? Because this was the biggest problem for my mother. It wasn't that I was, who I was, but it was, now what am I going to tell other people? Why did you tell me? Because now I have to lie if somebody asks me, or I have to you know, deal with this burden. So some years later, I, this was 1985, I put an ad in um, one of the gay 
magazine that gets popular in the US at the time. And another gay Indian replied through the essay. And I had never thought that this was something I was going to be an activist about or do anything publicly about. This was my life and I was just going to deal with it. I never really saw myself as a very public person. But he was very passionate and he said, you've got to, you've got to launch a group. And so I, I concurred and so we launched the team. And because I had mentioned to him that I used to edit my school magazine, I became the first editor. But out of deference and respect to my mother, I used a pseudonym. So I used the name Suveer Das. I don't know where that came from. Suveer, I know, came from because it's veer, meaning courage. And so, you know, to be an activist took some courage in 1985. And so I adopted that pseudonym. And so that is how Tricone was born. We, we, we were two people to start with. And then we produced this magazine and we got some assistance from other Western um, groups and magazines. And so the magazine spread. And we started, you know, people somehow got to know about us. And so we grew. And I remember the one thing that stuck in my mind at that time was some of the most desperate and the most passionate letters and the most emotional letters we got were from gay men from the Middle East. Some of them were Indians working in the Middle East. Some, some of them were Arabs in the Middle East, so they were in their own countries. And they were absolutely desperate. And just the knowledge of a group like ours was almost, <coughs> you know, they were so grateful just to know that we were there and we were trying to say that this is not an abnormal thing. Please don't feel bad about it. And, you know, we can, we can still live our lives. And um, so, this struck me right in the early days that other people wrote to us from India, of course, because in, you know, as what we would do is when we'd go back to India, we'd leave, leave copies of magazines where people would accept from some bookstores and some places. And so that was the first thing that struck me. Now, now I want to talk about a major error in the foundation of Tricone. And I think what I'm now going to say is very politically relevant because nothing, because that aspect has not changed today. And, and I think it stems from the fact that now I have to tell you a little bit about myself, that I have, I sort of identified as a Gnostic or as an atheist very young in life. I think by nine or 10 years old or was it 11, I don't even remember when. I had worked out for myself that I, did, I was not going to be a believer. I was not interested in religion. And my entire life was going to be based on rational experience, science. But I was also greatly driven by a sense of doing the right thing by other people around me, a sense of, a deep sense of conscience, a sense of responsibility to family, um, you know, love and consideration for people in my life and things like that. So I was, so, in a way, you can say I was the ideal prototype of a very secular human being, you know, a sort of, you know, um, sort of natural secular uh, human being. And so, and, and I have to say that whatever it is, I grew up kind of very patriotic. I, you know, I love my country. I, I wanted to be a good citizen of the country. And the philosophy of the country at that time, the political philosophy of the country was, Secularism and socialism, and I accepted both, unquestioningly. This was what I had been taught, and as a good Indian citizen, I was going to represent that. 
in, in my life and in whatever public activity I do. So Tricone was launched not as a group for gay Indians, but as a, as a South Asian support group for, in, for not only Indians, but Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Nepalis, Afghans, Sri Lankans, and so on. Very innocent, very idealistic, and uh, a complete ignorance about the real world. And, and I'm sure most of you will understand why that became a trap. But over time, it became a huge obstacle to progress. And I'd like to kind of, if you'll bear with me, and I'll, if I have a little more time, I'd like to discuss that. Because this conception of South Asian, if you think about it, at the very, at the very outset, it cuts the root of Indic civilization. It kind of says that we Indians are not a civilizational people, we are just a geographic people. There's a huge difference between civilization and geography, between culture and inherited history and inherited knowledge and a very deep, as an atheist I've now discovered that we have a very rich uh, rational tradition. I mean, there's the Nyaya Sutras, there's Mimamsa, there's Sankhya. I mean, I, I don't know if how many of you are aware, but there's at least half a dozen non-theistic schools in, in our Hindu umbrella. And even in the Vedantic system, there is an acknowledgement that we will never know the whole truth about why we exist, whether there is a God, whether there isn't, whether the world was created or it was always there. These are very profound, you know, philosophical and scientific questions that we will always keep trying to approach the truth, but we'll never totally get, get to it. And, uh, and so the other thing is just within our family, I remember, uh, again, just to give a background of the kind of secularism we grew up with. One Diwali, my grandmother wanted to do some rituals. And this she always wanted to do, these small rituals every Diwali. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. Then my mother said, no. She says, one day in a year, we will do this for our grandmother. And that left a very deep impression on me because unlike a lot of atheists who just hate religious people, that childhood memory stuck with me, which was that if my grandmother has faith and wants to do a little ritual, then out of love and respect for my grandmother, we will all participate because it's only five minutes maximum. It's, you know, and actually there's nothing wrong with it. Now, of course, now as we go on, I, I, you know, my sister has sort of educated me on the different rituals and the beauty of some of these traditions and, you know, this, they, they ha even as a non-believer, there is a certain beauty that I as an atheist can absorb and, and I can appreciate. And so now I have that, but that lesson stayed with me, which was that in our own family, we could be devout like my grandmother, we could be like my sister, or we could be like me. All of us coexist and we love each other. And so, here I want to say, so moving on, um, I have a deep difficulty with some elements of the so-called LGBT or all these lotus communities, intellectualization that in order for people like us to be free and liberated, we have to destroy religion. But that is not how I grew up. It was not necessary. And in fact, in this experience with Tricorn, as we started meeting more people and we started getting letters from other gay and lesbian people and people who, uh, at that time we didn't 
हमारी लाज चली जाएगी हमारी लाज कैसे रहेगी नो दिस कॉन्सेप्ट ऑफ सेफ फेस और नो इट्स मोर देन दैट आर रिस्पेक्ट इन सोसाइटी एंड ऑनर एग्जैक्टली एंड सो एवरी चाइल्ड बर्डन वॉज के इफ वी टेल दैम यू आर गोइंग टू डिस्ट्रॉय दर सेंस ऑफ ऑनर यू आर गोइंग टू टेक समथिंग अवे फ्रॉम दैम एंड सो वी कॉन्ट टेल दैम एंड देर फोर दे वुड सफर सो द सफरिंग वॉज एंटायरली सोशोलॉजिकल इट वॉज नॉट इट वॉज नॉट कमिंग फ्रॉम अ रिलीजियस प्लेस it was not saying that you are going to hell or you know or you are you're sinning by doing this no it was entirely this deep attachment to family and concern for how this will play out for the family so i want to emphasize this that as i come for i i'll talk a little bit about you know solutions going forward or what is most important i want this to be with all of us that how will our parents take it how will the extended family take it um so uh, moving on uh, then as tactics we kind of thought now how we going to you know relate to other groups and make progress in india and one of the things where we got stuck is that because we were so divorced from our own indic traditions i mean we've seen some you know slides today and then we've heard a wonderful uh, medical presentation a scientific presentation on our genetic traits and how that affects us as sexual beings and um we first of all in 1985 and even the rest of the 80s we would have had no way of getting that information so for so to some extent we were simply victims of ignorance um the second thing is that the environment at that time was that um as you all know now the kind of history we were taught what we were taught in schools about our culture and civilization it was very hindu negated and it was it was almost like a history starts with the mughal invasions we have great mughal monuments and then we have colonial rule and we have all these governor generals and there's nothing else literally nothing else and then of course as children you know your parents take you to uh, lal kila you go to agra you see the taj so your only sense of history is the monuments that have exist in the names of the mughal conquerors there's uh, tomb there's tombs and you know maybe some fort and we don't even know that these forts may have preexisted because i i happen to now believe as someone i mean i've done a lot of reading on uh, the taj mahal agra fort and fatehpur sikri that these were probably preexisting monuments that were uh let's say uh, facade manufactured or you know like in the taj mahal um i'm now fairly convinced that the taj mahal was a pre-existing monument and we can you know and at different times it may have been a temple or a palace that's 
I don't have enough knowledge and you know, I don't, we'll have to do a lot of carbon dating and research to really find out more of the truth. But um, you know, the whatever was done was facade engineering. The whole thing was not built from scratch. And, uh, but that's an aside, forgive me for that aside. But again, what I want to point out is that since we were so much in the dark of our own history, we couldn't really analyze from a historic sociological perspective of, of what it meant to be gay in India. So all our tools of understanding ourselves had to come from the West, you know, from American, the American gay movement or the Australian gay movement. And we also, I think, to some extent, felt somewhat um, on the defensive when we were, you know, when India was criticized by gay activists. And then, you know, gay activists would say, oh, India is so homophobic. And if you, in India, whether it was a childhood friend or a college friend, nobody rejected you. Everybody's reaction was, you're our friend and you're going to stay our friend. And that was it. Now, they were not comfortable going into details about it. They didn't talk about their sexuality with me. <laughs> it would have been awkward for them to listen to me going into details, and I was not even interested in doing that. But the point was that our relationship didn't change. I didn't lose a single friend. The only time I lost a friend was some years later in the US. Uh, Indian, an Indian who had grown up in Konya. He got shaken up, but he wanted to be my roommate. We were best friends at work. We got along really great. He was also Sindhu like me. And then I said, look, if you're going to be my roommate, I have to tell you this. And then he was all upset, why did you tell me? <laughs> and it's the first time anybody was upset, but he was not an Indian who grew up in India. He had grown up in Kenya and then come to the US. So. So I used to get very upset when you know these Western gay activists would sort of generalize about India, that's how India is so homophobic. And I thought, you know what? I haven't, nobody's kicked me out of my family. Nothing has changed within the family. Yes, my mom is bothered about it, but you know, it's what it is. So there was this contradiction as well. And later on in the 90s, we saw the, germination of a lot of NGOs in the US that wanted to do good work in, in India. So we had, in fact, that is how Kejriwal was born. Um, he's actually one of the, you know, uh, he's the protagonist of the NGO type. And, uh, and, and you'll, and, and I, one, if you just bear with me, I'll, I'd like to take a few extra minutes to talk about the whole NGO culture and how it originated and its impact today, because I think that's politically very relevant. And um, I, so even though it's about, this conference is about gender and sexuality, I think my personal experience and our experience in Tripon will be very useful in understanding the broader NGO culture that developed from the 90s on. So what was this NGO culture? For the most part, it was very idealistic individuals like me who came from fairly sec from very similar secular middle-class families who wanted to do something good for the country. So a lot of them went to education. So you had groups like ASHA. I don't know how many of you have heard of ASHA. But ASHA is an NGO that collects money in the US and then tries to set up educational institutes in India. And there were several groups like this. We did earthquake relief. We did, you know, a lot of people in Silicon Valley, I ended up in Silicon Valley. And uh, 
they felt that we are making good money and this is, we have to give something back to the country. And life knew a lot of these people are very innocently happy in the sense that they had, there's this naive belief that all religions are the same. That people from, you know, experientially we knew, and I knew certainly, that Islam was backward. We were getting these horrendous letters from the Middle East, which were Islamic countries. So experientially, we had some knowledge that Islamic countries are problematic. But our worldview was so deeply uh, shaped by this belief that all religions are equal that we couldn't question it. And so we all reinforced this idealistic secularism, which was not based on reality. And why was it not based on reality? The reason it was not based on reality is one, it did not take into account the Islamic invasion. So it did not take into account all the destruction that we saw of our heritage. Um, and just relating to what Jeetu presented, I started traveling around that time. Uh, I used to come home and then I used to always do one trip outside the city. And I noticed, for instance, that as I traveled deeper into southern India, I saw very rich ancient Hindu traditions. But in northern India, you don't see it at all. In Haryana, there's almost nothing. In UP, it's there in the museums, but it's there's very few places it's, uh, other than Banaras and a few places where you see some living, or you know, not living, but a, a sort of intact tradition, like in Sarnath and Kashi and things like that. But Haryana, Punjab, so it just disappeared. Absolutely nothing. So then, on the other hand, I went to Tamil Nadu for about eight days, and there was literally a grand monumental temple every 15 kilometers. Uh, I mean, I started off in Madurai, uh, <laughs> Gopi's hometown, and uh, it's, um, you know, I must thank Gopi and Prashant for the enormous work they've done and tremendous work to organize this and give me an opportunity. But from Madurai to, um, so again, um, can I take permission to exceed my time? Oh, okay. So, um, so there was this huge tradition, but it was not there in the north. And so we were not able to have recourse to our own sources of where, for instance, we heard about what is mentioned in the Ayurveda, that at least there's an acknowledgement of uh, different gender identities, of different sexualities. Of, so we, now the attitude might not have been 100% accepting, and they might have been this view that they could change it, but at least this was acknowledged. And at least there was no sin associated with it. And one of the things I remember, I was in Gangai Konda Cholapuram, which is near uh, Tanjav, which is between Tanjavur and uh, Trichy. Um, and one of, I was, I had this old camera and I was taking photographs and one young man came to me and, you know, dragged me and said, pointed me to an Ardhanari. He was very keen, for some reason he felt that it was very important to show me that there was a sculpture of the Ardhanarishwar. And, and then later on I saw a very grand representation of the Ardhanarishwar in Elephanta, near Mumbai. And uh, then there was another place, of course Khajuraho we all know about, but there's a place called Kavardha in Chhattisgarh. And there's a palace, probably 500 year old palace, for the dynasty there in Kabardha, and the 
it's uh, not many people know about this town. And uh, there's a gra very grand temple there. There's a little, you know, sort of palace pa pavilion for the old rulers. And it's full of gay erotic stuff. Every sexual position is there. I don't have to be explicit, but it's all there with male genitalia and everything. And as my sister has traveled more than me, she, she can also verify that visual representations, cultural representations of this sexuality is there. Almost throughout India, except where it's been completely discovered. <laughs> it's there in, it's there in um, uh, miniature paintings as well. And so um, this, there is this tradition. But we could not actually even look at it because we were so dumbed down and we were so cut off from this tradition. And I only started discovering as, as I traveled. But then when I tried to bring this information back, there was a block. And this is what I want to talk about, that once you set up an organization based on South Asian identities, then even the most secular Muslims, the Muslims who are not going to a mosque, who, are not, who have never read the Quran, they will some, somewhere want to resist this because their identity is still Muslim. And so their Muslim Islamic identity will overrule something that is actually going to be helpful in their lives because they cannot come out of it. Now, I don't want to generalize. There were some Muslims who were totally open to it and were actually fascinated by it. But as a group, we could not say that, look, Islam destroyed this because you cannot offend the Pakistani in the group, you cannot offend the Bangladeshi in the group. And then even the Hindus in the group did not want to offend it because they had Muslim friends. So you have one Muslim friend and because of that, you cannot tell the truth about Islam. So this went on and this happened across the board in the NGO movement. It did not happen just with us. There were exceptions and I have to say I made my share of mistakes because I, as I said, I was very idealistic that at that time. And it, it was a journey for me to, you know, evolve really and get closer to the truth. But as things stand now, I am not a respected member of Trikon. The Trikon as an organization still exists and I've literally been so uh, insulted that I don't want to be part of it. And this is entirely because now I am trying to tell the truth and people don't want to hear it. And so this is one of the contradictions that for gay people, not only as gay Indians, not only is it important to know what was destroyed, but Islam is very homophobic. If you read the Quran, if you read any of the Islamic texts, the hadith, anything related to Islamic jurisprudence, there is no space for gay people to exist in peace. They have to be, they have to be physically harmed. And those of you who followed the stories of ISIS in the Middle East, there were credible stories of gay people being thrown down from buildings. So even people who were hiding couldn't hide because if somehow somebody caught you somewhere, you were going to be physically harmed. And yet we cannot talk about that in a gay, in a gay group. In a gay group, we could not say, look, this is what is happening also. And so this is, I think, a very serious problem that if you start out with a concept that is wrong, even innocently, I mean, some, you know, it is said that the 
road to hell is paved with good intentions. We had a lot of good intentions, but it was a road to hell because we had no idea what Islam really was. We did not know what the Quran actually said about Islam. And of course, when it comes to gender, you know, my sister can elaborate, but again, there is no gender equality in Islam and they cannot be. So this was a big problem. And also there were two things that in the Western concept, you had some of these gay activists who completely bought this notion that you have to destroy religion. But in our real life experience, religion, as I've emphasized, nobody was bringing up, religion was never the obstacle. Now, yes, ba Baba Ramdev can say that he can cure it. And I, a lot of people would find that very insulting and very unscientific in today's world. But he can say it. There are others, there are others like Sri Sri and the other, uh, Sadhguru who are completely, you know, who have a different perspective. So in a democratic society, all, you know, perspectives can exist. It's a question of how far we can make our point. So this is one of the reasons why we see NGOs in this trash of being completely blinded to the crimes of Islam and to the obstacles that Islam poses on civil society, on developing modern civilization, because one, they have completely been brainwashed into this idealistic secularism and because they do not want to offend Muslims in their group. And the tragedy of many secular Muslims is that they cannot hear criticism of Islam. Now, I don't really like to do this. I hate to get into personalities, but I have to do it. And I have permission to do it, so bear with me. In 1985, when Tikkun was formed, we came back and we wanted to start a group here. And a lot of the young Hindu gay men that I met were eager to do that. Because they felt that, okay, you know, let's make our lives better. Let's do something about it. Other people are not going to do it for us. Let's do it ourselves. And the biggest obstacle came from a gentleman called Salim Kirwal, who unfortunately in the NGO gay community and the West is considered like an icon. But this is someone who was a professor of history who used to live at Jamia. And uh, he had a lot of gay friends. We, I mean, we, we went to all the gay parties, we got invited. So he had a large extended circle of gay friends, uh, some Muslim, mostly Hindus, and the odd Christian. But he was adamant that India was not ready for India. And he came up with on any time we had a discussion on to forming a support group, he would shoot it down. So in 1985, we already had a group in the US, but nothing happened in India for about a decade because they, oh, well, and the, on, on, the gay, on the gay male side, yeah. Um, because the young people didn't have the confidence of doing it alone. They needed some older mentors. And the older mentors led by someone like Salim Kirwal always shot it down. Now, my problem is not that he shot it down. He, he from his, from his Islamic background, you could totally understand it. He was very, he, he was not religious at all, but he was an extreme Islamic chauvinist. And that sense of identity of Islam being better did not allow him to have a movement where Hindu people would be liberated and Muslim people would not. Now, since he knew Islam was never going to go forward on it, he had to shut everything down for everybody. And the reason I'm saying this is because a lot of the myths about the gay movement in India are that, oh, Salim Kirbai is a leader. So I have to say this, 
even though it's very unfortunate, I don't like to you know focus on individuals. So these are, I think it's an important truth that that should be shared as to why this didn't happen. On the in contrast, after we formed our group, a lot of Asian groups got inspired by us in the U.S. So we had Chinese. Chinese people, uh, people of Chinese descent who, who organized, people of Vietnamese descent who organized, other Asian Pacific Islanders organized. And they, got, they went far ahead of us. Today, their social functions are huge. They have so much support. They're extremely well organized. Our Trikon seems like a literally childish amateurish group when we compare it to them, even though we started first. And we were the bravest. And yet, our that leadership was completely exhausted. The other thing I want to mention is that because then there was a second wave of activism which was driven by Western funds for HIV because of the HIV epidemic. And there, unfortunately, again, I have to be very truthful that while some good work was done and I don't want to, you know, now I won't name names because I'm, I'm not that inside, but I am aware that a lot of money was simply spent on Pakistan. It was not spent to expand the movement. So I'm going to wrap up very quickly. That And there was a lot of corruption as well, of misusing of funds. And that is why the movement didn't go forward. <laughs> but um, going forward, I think, if I can quickly mention the progress. The progress that we have made, and maybe I can answer questions. So. Um, Maybe you can ask me. Okay, so we'll do that at the end. And uh, so if you have questions about where the movement is today or what the situation for gay people is today, I'll, ha I'll happily share that. Preeti, you next? Uh, we have to go quickly because yeah. we're eating into lunch. Don't, don't so worry, don't worry. So uh, basically, you know, my trajectory is very different from my brother's. And I think this is a sort of like. Uh, this shows the sort of diversity of the Hindu umbrella. The person with the beard and the bindi and the uh, anti-CA parade, you remember? Yeah. Uh, ye sab police ki sazish hai and all of that. I start because I'm held responsible in right-wing circles for what any man, uh, gay man does anywhere, anywhere in the world. I start getting WhatsApp saying, Dekho, what did this fellow do? I mean, he's guardian, man. But see, I have to pick up the cross for him he gets away saying what he wants, but when I'm doing sensitization, I have to bear the cross for him. And I'm sorry, CA, I don't give a damn about CA. If there are, th th there is clearly something that, uh, you know, uh, transgenders and transsexuals who've been disowned by their parents will have problems proving these things. This is something where we needed to sit as a gov with the government, create a transsexual, transgender focus group go to the government and say, this is a problem, how are you going to solve it? And there the government listens. If you're going to take a julus out with uh, combining everything, Article 360, CAA, band karo, maximalist demands never work. All right, it, it, it is strategically stupid, but it's great for all the NGOs that want funding based on this. Is let a thousand flowers bloom. The right needs its own ecosystem of multiple little NGOs. The problem is NGOs can't exist in a vacuum. You need government <laughs> interface, you need funding, you need things like that, which, you know, unfortunately, it's not, it's not. 
can we take take two yeah. questions? But let's only two questions. Sorry, yeah. Let's quickly go into questions. If you can please identify who you're asking the question to and take the question. Hello. Uh, I hope uh, understand what I'm saying. Uh, first of all, Very quickly wind it up. Yeah. No, no. We, uh, we will we will finish. talk about it. We need to finish. So we also have a traditional uh, trans women from the Aravan community here, and it's predominantly organized by Tamilians. And we were discriminated in the same space, so we are organizing it. And we have included every single possible person from the diverse communities, from diverse lingual background, from diverse religions. To organize something like this, it's really tough. We will discuss about that later. Thank you uh, so much. And yeah. to just quickly answer the question about methodology, one of the things we've found is that a lot of the narratives here are anecdotal. We don't have a methodology of judging acceptance and things like that. Again, how do you do it? You do it with institutions and money. All right. The people who want to peddle this uh, intolerance narrative, they're the ones that get all the Western money, and they've got a certain angle to peddle. So like I said, we can't do any scientific work on this till there is backup, institutional backup. 
Another uh, quick, quick response. Okay. Um, I'll tell you what, let's collect all the questions. So anybody who wants to ask questions, put your hands up, please. Uh, one, two, three. Uh, the gentleman in the blue jacket first, then the lady in the harem, and the lady in the green. Court. Uh, first was on uh, plastic ban, and the second one was on this gay LGBTQ rights, where different uh, diplomats uh, from different embassies were coming there uh, advocating for the LGBTQ rights. And just after a month or in a month, it was passed by Supreme Court. Uh, so uh, my question is like, uh, apart from state and uh, civil society, is there any foreign kind of connection to it? And uh, the second question uh, relates something to it, like how media has, uh, I mean, in India, it has not played the role of any information provider regarding it. I mean, there was no larger movement which can be recognized uh, in media and in the public sphere. So uh, how uh, can you just address it like? Yeah, okay, uh, next question. Uh, s uh, leave the mic, it's quite thin. So, I mean, the gentleman who spoke to me was telling me that it's like uh, the biggest and most important understand that our president for the past 20 years has always been saying that the trial act is a war on gay rights. So, uh, where are the channels there? And you know, we're talking about how we couldn't homogenize this, right? But uh, when we're making a law, we have to cater to everyone, mm. is my understanding. And if I don't homogenize this, like Sir mentioned that having a geographical identity wasn't the right way to go. But if I make a civilizational identity, I leave a lot of people out of it. Meaning if Hinduism, as you're saying, is a very beautiful way of how you represent it. But in general, before I understood it, or before I read into it, or before I should read into it more, my understanding is completely political, which is the generalization that everyone has. So if I have Muslim friends or I am supposed to make a law that's for everyone, how do I make it in a way or what do I, uh, you know, what kind of reforms do I go forward and talk about which involves everyone without actually hampering what their faith is? Okay, understood. Uh, the lady in the green jacket. I just tweeted this that uh, I am attending a conference on Hindu tradition on sex, gender, and sexuality, and many people from our side are abusing me, trolling me. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Question three, and the gentleman in black. Question three. Hi, my name I'm is. I'm sorry. Hubesh. I presumed your pronouns. Did you get offended? No, no. Okay, good. I was just being facetious. <laughs> I hate PC. It's okay. Uh, my name is Hubnesh and I'm a law student and my question is directed toward Geetu ma'am. Uh, like you just said ma'am that you had to leave convent school due to uh, some issues with your prayer. So do you think that provisions could be made uh, so that uh, the prayers could be 
prayers could be student specific according to their religion and not school specific. Do you think that it could be constituted as that? Because, uh, uh, for example, me being a Hindu, I, by my own fault, and a lot of students by their own fault, might not be able to recite Hanuman Chalisa or Saraswati Chalisa, but we do know the Lord's Prayer. So, yeah, so that's my question. So let's answer backwards. Jyoti, do you want to take that last question first? Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you because, uh, I mean, there we were Hindu students in, you know, you know, convent school having to say our father who art in heaven. And I had absolutely no idea of anything like Saraswati. I didn't even know that Saraswati existed. So I think that we should, there should be a lot of reform and there should be a lot of reform in the school education. And we should find good ways of like introducing these. And we should also understand also that the, the, the fact that, the, that, that this imposed prayer, in, imposed monotheistic prayer uh, in Christian and in other theologies, Islamic, uh, whatever. I mean, that should be analyzed and questioned. That's all. Yeah. Um, actually, l let me answer the other question also as to one thing that has not happened is that our activists have actually only focused on HIV and issues around, uh, related to legal issues. In actually, what we need is uh, what I would call support for parents of um, you know, lesbian and gay people, because that is where the support is most lacking. And I think once we have parents involved and people know that their parents involved, the attitudes will change because it's because parents are the most concerned about this. I'll give you one small example, just again anecdotal. I have a friend who comes from a very traditional devout Hindu family and he had seven gay friends and all of them, this, their mothers were going through a very deep rejection inside that their sons were gay. And uh, they were having a very hard time dealing with it and they couldn't get the support they needed from their from the priests that they knew or the religious people that they knew. I mean, everybody was trying to get them, and these boys did not want to get married. So and they were feeling very alone, so these boys organized a trip, a social visit of all the seven gay friends and their seven mothers to um, Vrindavan. And although that, you know, some of them became friends after that, and some of them still remained pretty lonely and isolated, but all of them went through one trans transformation, which is they stopped asking their sons to get married. And all of them had some kind of a change in their hearts and minds, which was that we are not alone. Some, there is another mother with a gay son. And I think this is one of the starting points that when that the gay movement tries to make it out to be as these crazies who are abandoning society and uh, rebelling against society. But once we, get in, once we get parents and family members, brothers and sisters involved, and say, Ke dekho, these, are, these are our loved ones, please don't discriminate against them. Hindu society, Indian society will change. So I think a lot of work needs to be done from city to city, from province to province, district to district, about awareness and acceptance. Some of it has happened in the media. I don't think that the media has completely not done their work. Some, we will, I mean, I can think of many examples where, the, where somebody has done a good show or written a good article, but it's not, it's, it's sporadic. 
Um, and now the second question is that as a support group, our job is different from the government's job and the legal job. So I am not actually saying that I want a Hindu gay group at all. I, as I said, I started off by saying I'm an atheist. However, the reason I brought up the Hindu thing is that if we go to a Hindu tradition, we find some acknowledgement. Uh, you know, we, we, we got the acknowledgement from Ayurved, we get the acknowledgement from iconography, from art and sculpture. But it's to be aware of our history. And it helps us in communicating to others that this is not something imported because one of the resistances to the gay to gay progress in India is that a lot of people will say, Right? We have to counter that. Sadiyon se humne, you know, our ancestors have observed this. And you see that even a novelist like somebody like Doniger Flanerty, who's writing now this magazine, many years ago she used to write in her books that homosexuality doesn't exist in India. So there was this whole thing that there's no homosexuality in India. So, uh, you know, that's why we are gifting them the movement. The other thing is in the colonial logic, Indians were considered infantile. So they couldn't have minds. And actually the British were actually using, uh, you know, uh, gay-friendly texts in ancient Indian thought to say, look how useless they were. So on one hand, they were using that to say that Indians are infantile. On the other hand, the gay, you know, the indologists, the colonial endologists were using the fact, uh, the colonial endologists were basically saying homosexuality doesn't exist in India. And now they're saying the Hindu is bad. Hindu BJP is bad. Exactly. Yeah, so follow, continue to your question. Um, I think as a um, support group, our job is to give so emotional comfort, to help people in their day-to-day -day lives. Politically and legally, your job will be based on the Indian Constitution, right? But the Indian, as you look at the judgments of the Supreme Court when they, you know, reverse 377, there's a lot of material there where I think when I read the judgment, there was... When I, I mean, several in, uh, judges wrote special uh, arguments, but basically, I think that is where I would go forward from. There is, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff in that in, in that Supreme Court judgment that I think young lawyers can then take forward, and we would be quite happy with that. So, to answer the last two questions, just following up, I'm answering your thing. Look, the thing is, there is a established legal principle that the government doesn't interfere in minority um, uh, legislation as much as it does in majority uh, the majority community legislation, right? One simple act is simply make the Hindu Marriage Act 2019, all right? So when your friends ask you, bhai, you're excluding, how is it excluding anybody? You get the uh, Muslim personal law board, the Shia, the Sunni personal law board to say, Hum, we, we want a gender neutral interpretation. Leave the initiative for that up to them because this is based on legal principles, right? You have, I mean, if it changes to uniform civil code, then push for it to be, uniform civil code itself is then fundamentally inclusive. You push for a gender neutral interpretation. I can tell you honestly that when the Nirbhaya law was made, 
a lot of people wanted it to be a gender neutral interpretation of rape and the problem was it is the same people in Karajai Singh and Co that insisted that it was only male on female rape that would count in this all right so the only protection we had from rape for a very long time was section 375 all right so there are fundamental legal principles that you can apply to this which you can tell them jab tak ye alag alag personal laws ho you come up with your initiative we'll include it as far as the hindu law goes we're going to change it and make it gender neutral theek hai or if it's upc then you ask for right from the beginning ask for a gender neutral application but like he said then he used to keep getting caught up by salim kidwai which is exactly the salim kidwai kind of people indra jaising kind of people that will prevent you from making it a gender neutral legislation because then you're killing the goose that lays golden eggs based on which you get money to then fight a battle to then make it gender neutral theek hai na understand this is like a rat catcher the rat catcher never kills all the rat bachas because he wants the rat problem to continue after a point of time to milk it Uh, to answer your question on the foreign uh, this thing we'll have to finish now we can talk about this afterwards on the foreign thing remember the foreign embassies only interact with people who get projected as celebrities by your press and most of your press is lefty and most of the people that get projected are the ones that want all the chevron fellowships and the rhodes scholarships and all of that so you get a highly curated point of view that the embassies take home remember embassy officials come depending on the country austria hungary is like 4 years uh, germany is like 3 years and so on and so forth they come in three year rotations they don't have time to pass on institutional knowledge and so on and so forth so it's a very very curated initiative they get again the problem remains ecosystem 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 i do till you create an ecosystem with funding in this you are perpetually going to remain on the back foot it doesn't matter what you do there is no if or but about it first of all uh, you you may see it Re- remember remember uh, a visibility blip a visibility blip because of social media does not involve an institutional blip remember the leftist capture of educational institutions hap- happened after the collapse of the soviet union all surveys done when the soviet union was alive used to vary between 55 to 65% who used to self identify as left wing today it is 93% yeah so the soviet union lost the cold war but they won the ideological war all right that's the problem they also lost the cold war but they won the american presidency that's a different matter so uh, but yeah. ultimately the soviet union did it right so thank you everyone for the session i believe yeah. lunch is yeah. served thank you so uh, before before parting yeah as whatever he says is true because uh, when homo, uh, intersex uh, you know surgeries were banned in india we we, we became the second country in the world to ban the surgery in tamil nadu became how many uh, western press especially new york times or bbc carried it california just blocked uh, you know a legislation if you don't know what is intersex law just go and check what is intersex law on google learn something and these people who are writing in media they have a strong background they are from elitist background my grandfather is not a millionaire or a billionaire or from a political family i'm coming from you know people from ground or not recognized they are, they are doing lipstick activism because they don't know the insider's perspective so with that note i want to gift uh, um a book by christopher isherwood who is a gay uh, british gay author who lived in ramakrishna mat in hollywood and i want professor nagraj patori to hand over the memento to abhijit <laughs> and also geeti ji to hand over uh, the memento to abhijit
and also Geeti ji to uh, and uh, Nagraj ji to hand over the memento to Shishir ji. And we can go for lunch. And after this, we have uh, how indigenous communities view sex, gender, and sexuality before sex reassignment surgery. How you know the medical community? What happened? How cruel the process were? The superstition within the indigenous community. The good things about the community. What happened? We are going to discuss that further in the afternoon from the people who belongs to the indigenous indigenous gender variant communities. Jaima. <laughs> 